like my previous guest on soundtracking, John Favreau, Matt Ross is annoyingly multi-talented. He made his name as an actor, appearing in the likes of American Psycho, Good Night and Good Luck, and most famously, Silicon Valley, in which he plays slippery tech firm boss Gavin Belson. I didn't think it would be this hard, but goodbyes are always hard, especially when I am the one saying goodbye. Today, effective immediately, I, Gavin Belson, founder and CEO of Huli, am forced to officially say goodbye to the entire Nucleus division. All Nucleus personnel will be given proper notice and terminated. His first major feature, 28 Hotel Rooms, showed him to be a dab hand at screenwriting and directing. Scored by Will Bates of Fall on Your Sword, it's about a couple who conduct a long-term affair in cities far from their home. I get you for a day, I get you for two days. If I'm lucky, I get you for three days. You knew this is how I'm so tired of not having you when I want you. I don't want to share you anymore. I'm not leaving him. Now he brings us one of my movies of the year in the shape of Captain Fantastic. Starring Viggo Mortensen, it tells the story of a family raised in the wilderness who are forced to reintegrate having lived in isolation for a decade. You have to stab to kill. Aim for the liver or the kidneys. She knew you in here. Imagine a lung straight pneumothorax. Or next to the sternum. Penetrate the heart? That'd be instant death. It makes you happy, Sarge? Sure. Aim for the heart. I'm Edith Bowman, and you're listening to Soundtracking, a weekly podcast in which I explore the relationship between music and cinema with actors, writers, and directors. And there's plenty of ground to cover with Matt. Whilst relatively new to filmmaking, he's a genuine music aficionado, with tastes ranging from bagpiping to German experimentalism and Bulgarian folk, not to mention Tom Waits and Nick Cave. His new film delivers plenty of sonic treats, as well as an incredibly powerful interpretation of a Guns N' Roses classic, there's the oral feast that is Alex Summers' score too. It's a beautiful and supremely accomplished piece of work, which is why we've included excerpts from as many of the individual compositions as we can. There were also a couple of Prince tracks in the original script that were omitted from the final cut for rights reasons, so we'll play those as well. But we begin with Sigaros, given that they not only feature on the soundtrack to Captain Fantastic, but are one of Matt's favourite bands. Matt Ross, it's an absolute pleasure and congratulations on this wonderful new film of yours, Captain Fantastic. Thank you. How did you want music to be used in the film? First off, I don't think necessarily in musical terms, but I do write to music. So anytime I'm writing, I find that it's positive and helpful to me to block out the world and to create kind of a non-verbal soundscape as I'm writing. And I tend to write to music that's either classical music, uh, obviously music with no singing or lyrics, or in a foreign language. When I was writing this, I was listening to a lot of Sigur Ross, or as I like to call them, Sigur Matt Ross. Um, and uh, and I, I, love their, I love their music. I've been a fan since the first album, and I have all of their music. And, you know, music 
lyrics can be poetry and good music is and when I'm listening I stop writing because you, you start listening and you're paying attention to the narrative and I don't want a narrative I want a soundscape I want something propulsive I spoke to Yonzi and Alex Summers. Yonzi, I think, works, I believe, my understanding is that he's in the band Ziggurat, he has solo albums, and he also does side projects with Alex yeah. Summers. And so I spoke to them about doing the music, and very early I wanted that tone in the movie, partly because I feel like it's, well, there are many reasons. One, I, I said to them, and I, said, I, I, I did say it to them, and I'll say it here, that it, it really does change my body temperature. I said this about the bagpipes as well, and it's true. When I listen to Sigurás, I feel, I, I feel tingly. It changes. There's something about it. It's also very cinematic. There are rises and falls. There are uh, climaxes and sort of troughs, you know, and, and it feels like there's a story happening. Also because of how Yonzi sings, not only in the, the tone he sings and that kind of falsetto, but his, I think he sings in Hopelandic, which is a made-up yeah, language. Yeah, there is language. That it's, it's like magical fairy music. It's yeah. like elfish or something, elvish. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's, it's like from Middle Earth, and I love it. There's something so transportive and magical about it. I really do feel that way. I, I think it's extraordinary and special. I mean, the only other thing I could think of that re it reminded me of is, have you ever heard of um, Les Mistoires des Voix Bulgares, which is the mysterious vo Bulgarian voices? It's this chorus of women singing in Bulgarian, and it sounds like alien music. It's extraordinarily beautiful and so powerful, and Sigurás has a similar tone. So I spoke with them about that. I, that was something I wanted, and, and I just it was very fortunate that it worked out that there's a lot of Sigurás and Yonzi and Alex in the movie. Alex Summers was the um, composer, and he works with them, and so he brought a similar tone and a similar vibe. 
I mean, one of the things I really wanted to do, this is a podcast about music and film, and one of the things I really wanted to do and endeavor to do going forward is have original music from the beginning. And it's something I said to Alex and Yonzi, but because of their schedule, it did not happen. I wanted them to write a score based on the script and then cut to their score. That was something I really, really wanted to do. And it was something I couldn't do for 28 Hotel Rooms because it was a very low-budget film. But this was a, a larger budget, but still, it didn't happen. I couldn't get a hold of them until much later. And yeah. I really wanted to see what that would be like to have someone's pure interpretation based on the screenplay, what they're seeing, what they're hearing, how they want to bring in music, when they want to bring in music, and then allow me to put it where I wanted yeah. and to cut it up. I could not do that with, with this film either. I, I would still love to try that. Because otherwise what you're really doing is if you bring in temp music, yeah. uh, which is really horrendous it's for the... It's, well. it's dangerous and it's horrendous for the musicians that you end up hiring because you're then sort of saying in a way, do this but do it your own way or do do this but but do a different version of this and that's not helpful and the reason why you do that is because you're using music to underscore or highlight certain moments. Yeah. And, and then you're asking them to replicate how you use someone else's music. That's like putting widgets in. And so we tried not to do that as much as possible and allow what Alex would give us to play. an amazing job in this because I also think as well in terms of the setting and where this family you know where their home mm. is and to allow nature and the sounds mm. of nature and the sounds of, of, of well, a deer being skinned being the soundtrack mm. to that it's so important to allow that to breathe and allow that to I think I wanted to be somewhat unexpected you know and that yeah. some of the music originally that was going to be in the film in the script there were some songs mentioned some tones that I wanted to bring in that were I think surprising and a way of doing music in this in this film the score could have been lack of a better word an Americana score you know guitars and mm -hmm. banjo and and I had thought of that and explored that a little bit but I felt more expected and I wanted a tone that was somewhat unexpected or, and for me that's where we arrived Bagpipes were very unexpected. Yeah. <laughs>
a very nice unexpected, but why? I don't know. I did not grow up in Scotland. I find the bagpipes to be one of the most haunting, enigmatic, and evocative instruments. And I do listen to bagpipe music all the time. Many people think that it's absurd, but it's like a primordial instrument. I don't know. There's something about it. And you find similar instruments to the bagpipes in many cultures. There are like wind instruments that are similar. Yeah. And there's a comedic element to it, I think, because it's anachronistic. You don't expect it. But he uses it in the film to wake his children up. And it's sort of a call to arms. And then, then something happens where they have to go on a journey. And he uses that again. And what he says is, so they know we're coming. And that's how it was used in battle. Yeah, it's the clan. And He's waking exactly, the clan exactly, up. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they know we're coming. I touch at people when I see their eyes roll as soon as they hear the first note from a bagpipe. I'll give it a chance. I wonder, maybe it's just because in the UK you're overexposed. I mean, the only time you see it in the US at all is in Boston, for instance. There's a lot of Irish in Boston, a lot of you yeah. know people of, of Scots-Irish descent. And so in all the police parades and... College you know, football as well, I remember being. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, sometimes. But there's a subculture uh, that exists in the US of pipe players. And a guy I went to high school with man named Murray Huggins has become one of the premier pipe makers in the world and uh, he plays on the soundtrack and he played at my wedding. But frankly, I'm still learning to use music in films. I find that many films are over-orchestrated, and I would like to use music counterpunctually, if that's the word, meaning that I don't want the music to tell you what to think, that it should be another, literally it is a note, but it should be another note, just like lighting can be a note. It should supplement or play counter to or have some contribution to what's happening but not tell you what to think. You don't uh, want it to be a beacon going, okay, cry Right, now. exactly. And that's how it's used frequently, you know. Yeah. So I'm, I think that we can all identify when music is used very well and there are some directors that do that very well and I, I think I'm still learning to and I'm not sure how it will continue to play. within the film as well is really subtle it doesn't feel like time for a musical interlude it's part of them it's part of the characters mm -hmm. it's part of discovering the relationships as well and there's a track used in the film which is a very popular track but it very much feels like this film owns this track mm -hmm. in terms of the way that you've interpreted it and your cast perform it it's them mm -hmm. doing everything mm -hmm. and you know how did you know that they could sing and what point did you decide that you were going to do this track mm -hmm. how did you get to decide on this track and then asking them to do it I think that was nine questions let me Sorry. see if I can, let me see if <laughs> yeah. I can remember that okay. so the first First one was, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I think I got it. I got it. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. I'm joking. I'm joking. So first off, I'd start off by saying that I am musically inept myself. <laughs> um, I played guitar and electric bass very poorly as a child. My brother, who did a lot of music in the film, 
when I needed pieces in, in different places that were not soundtrack or score based, he would do the music. He actually sings the uh, Bob Dylan cover at the end, I Shall Be Released. They say everything can be replaced They say every distance is not near And so I remember Every man who put me here I see my light come shining From the west down to the east Any day now Any day So originally there were going to be Prince songs in the film at uh, that moment, and that's oh, what wow. I was—that's what I was talking about. That's yeah. something unexpected, you know. Uh, Prince is very urban, funky music, and you would not expect, uh, certainly in rural America, it's not something necessarily an expected musical choice. And the right, I say the right is south. You must be. terms of the musical number that you're you're mentioning again it was a different song originally it was a prince song i love prince when we were filming the movie prince was alive and he was finally after many years he was granting the rights to a lot of his music except for two songs and those were the very two songs <laughs> that i had put in the script song in question, or should we say what yeah, the song can, is? Yeah. yeah, so it's Sweet Child of Mine. And I think the endeavor is to try and create a, an iconic film moment using a song and reinventing the song or in a way that the song has not been used before yeah. so that it feels and means something different. So it's hundreds and hundreds of songs. And it happened very late in the production, which made the producer extremely nervous. Lynette Howell-Taylor is sort of my creative producer, and she's a Brit. She, she and I were every day emailing back and forth 9,000 times, and I think she was beginning to have heart palpitations. Not beginning, she was having them. I was too. And 
honestly, the lyrics are meaningful in a way that I hadn't even thought of. What I was trying to find is a song that would have been appropriate for the age of the mother, that might have been something that she listened to when she was in her late teens, early 20s, and also something that was unexpected. Again, reinventing the song. And then in terms of the children's skills, when we were casting the, the kids, on paper it was a tall order. We needed kids who were physically fit, who were well-spoken, you know, that had some fighting skills, that could hunt, that could rock climb, who could, who could sing or play instruments. And now I made the decision early on that I was going to try and cast children whose spirit matched the spirit of the character that I needed them to play and not necessarily the kids who could come in and recite the lines or deliver necessarily a performance in a way that we could all identify as the best, whatever that is, it's subjective anyway. But we were aware of certain skills because we had two musical numbers and two stunts with children. So yeah. in terms of the music, Nicholas Hamilton, who plays Relian, is a drummer and I was aware that that would be useful. And Samantha Isler, who plays Keeler, uh, sings, and in her audition tape, among various skills like gymnastics and all sorts of things, she did all the, all, you know, that, some of the tapes that people would send in were just extraordinary trapeze artists, I mean, things, wow. just extraordinary skills. Um, she had a beautiful voice. Now and then when I see her face, she takes me away to that special place. I didn't cast her for that reason, but I was aware there's a moment that needs to happen and we weren't going to get there and be, oh no, we need someone who can sing. No, with no with instruments, nothing. just pure, yeah. What was your reaction when you heard that for the first time? Because well, I know what, what mine was. I had absolute faith in her, and I knew she could do it. And once we were in the studio, we had enough time that she could really play, and we brought in each kid, and just like you record an actual yeah. CD. And I remember feeling not just elated, because it wasn't a surprise to me, I would say. Yeah. I, you know, I, don't know, I felt um, like I was going to tear up, I think. It was just because it's very powerful. You know, it's a very raw, pure uh, sound. The human voice, when it's just unadulterated, there's nothing else. You know, there's nothing. You know, a lot of pop stars have, there's now in Pro Tools, all these, these yeah. filters that can yeah. change the voice. And when you hear a human voice, it's just pure. It's so powerful. <laughs> 
we're talking about 28 rooms. 28 hotel, hotel rooms, rooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah. terms of, of kind of music and, yeah. uh, you know, I think you work with Will Beats that you yeah, work with. Yeah, that's right. Music. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Fall on Your Sword is his band. Um, Joe Krings, who's the editor I work with in both films, I think he turned me on to Fall on Your Sword. I think at the time they had a couple other films that I'd seen, and I remember really loving their music. Joe had a, uh, a vault of a lot of their music and we were listening to it. And again, it, it was music not dissimilar to Sigurdsson and that, that it was evocative and otherworldly. And I loved how he played around the scenes without telling you how to feel. So I think with Will, what I did with Will originally was I said, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Watch the movie. You tell me how you think you think it should. It, let me, I want to hear what you want to do. And then it was a long process of, a, it was just a conversation of me reflecting on what he did. So the music works this way for me here and not here. Because really the uncomfortable thing for any composers who write film music is that you are really having to work with someone else's vision. music you answer only to yourself and I think one of the reasons perhaps some musicians do not like to do film music is because ultimately they're not the entire author you are sharing authorship with the director in some fashion because I'm using music in a narrative it's not necessarily something well it's not designed just to put on the the, the vinyl and sit down and close your eyes it's playing with a narrative. It's just the way lighting plays in the narrative. Yeah. It's reflecting on something. It's telling a story. It's a storytelling device that's part and parcel of a larger whole. Yeah. And so you are one of the notes, but you are not the only note. I did this with Alex as well. I'd say, so it's working for me here, but in this moment, I feel like it's telling me what to think. Yeah. Or what I'm getting from it is actually not helpful. I feel like it's leaning into this, and I'd rather lean into that. And it's entirely subjective. As Alex Summers, who's the composer um, who did the score of Captain Fantastic, said, even musicians have a hard time talking about music. You know, because <laughs> I the worst. Yeah, when, when I when They're I met him, when I met he and, and Yonzi, I was you know we were talking about the music and I was trying to articulate and I was struggling and he said, don't worry, even musicians have a hard time talking about music. Try and, and, and it's, try interviewing <laughs> them, Matt. <laughs> and it's true. It's such a it's a nonverbal mathematical equation um, made up of sound uh, of organized sound. Right, that's what music is: organized sound. My 
I say my editor, Joe Krings is not my editor. I do not own Joe Krings, um, <laughs> though I'd like to. Joe, if you hear me, I'd like to own you. Um, Joe is the editor of both my films, and he's an extraordinary editor, really extraordinary, and I feel he's one of my central collaborators, and Joe's musical knowledge, I think, is, is deeper than mine and also very different than mine. We, we fight like husband and wife frequently about music because I hear things that he's like, I do have no idea how you hear that in that. I mean, I'm like, I don't like it for this reason, and he's, he's you're absolutely wrong. I hear this. <laughs> And we fight, but you know, I, I as the director, I get to ultimately choose, and 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 I listen to him, and um, but we have a great conversation yeah. about music frequently while we're editing. You also have um, a music editor. Her contribution is, is large. Jen's contribution was large to how she used Alex's music. She would cut it up in certain various ways. I would talk to her and say, what if this happened there? Uh, what if there were more of this this tone here? And she would cut it up and give me multiple, multiple versions for yeah. every moment. jobs as well. I used to when I was a kid. I mean, I remember I was in a play called Wojciech, uh, which I think is Georg Buchner, which I think I think he was German, maybe an Austrian. And it's a play that's frequently done as an opera. Directors love it because the playwright died, and when he died, they were unsure of what form the scenes should take. sure what order they should take so yeah. directors love to play with it because it's essentially a house of cards you can shuffle around <laughs> it's about a soldier who goes slowly insane he's being this is experiment that's being done where he's being fed only peas there's a very famous Klaus Kinski movie made of it as well Wojciech <laughs> He's a killer, essentially, he goes insane. And I remember listening to music constantly to keep me in this kind of sociopathic zone. Um, that's a very <laughs> young, you that's a very, to? I don't remember, oh. I don't remember, really, I'm sure it was like... Rammstein you know, or something? Yeah, was... well, no, what's, what's, the, what's the German band? Eins, Eins, um, something like Ein something Neubauten, and okay. it's like, they use, it's, a, it's a German band, and I think they like play on the side of highways, hitting the cement. It was a long time ago. <laughs> they're probably around, and they're gonna write me hate mail. Please don't, I liked your music very much at the time. Is that it? Einstürzen Neubauten. Yeah, that's it. It's a German industrial band, originally from yeah, West Berlin. That's them. Ich bin unterwegs. In einer Melange aus Jetlag und Alkohol. In einem Bus mit 100 Sachen. Oh, 
so much anymore but I think it's an effective tool certainly but not so much now <laughs> no I don't really know I mean I'm on a show Silicon Valley now and music is not necessary for me to get into the, the headspace what does character. Gavin listen to though what kind of music does Gavin listen probably to probably Enya <laughs> <laughs> alright take it away I don't know what your top 40 radio is. I'm probably offend lots of people, but I find it insufferable. I mean, I, I feel like an old man. I'm like, I listen to the radio, my kids. I, I don't know, in London, you probably don't need to drive, which you're very fortunate. In, in California, you have to drive. Anytime you get anywhere, you have to get in your car. So we have radio stations on, you know, programmed in, and I hit them all in my wife's car, and I'm like, wow, literally every station is a terrible song. And so I'm always searching. So I have, with Bluetooth, I force my kids to listen to Tom Waits and uh, Nick Cave and Johnny Cash. This is how the world will be Everywhere I go, it rains on me Everywhere I go Everywhere I go Everywhere I go It rains on me My proud parenting moment is that my nine-year-old can identify Johnny Cash's voice and Tom Waits's voice and Nick Cave, and so I, I'm trying to help them. I think you probably already know this, but it'll make you happy then. Captain Fantastic out mm. on the 9th of September is out the mm. same day as Nick Cave's new album. That will make me very happy. I'm going to buy it on vinyl. My absolute pleasure. What you've done with Captain Fantastic is wonderful. Thank you. I hope so as well. We'll see. We'll see what time will reveal. Come back with the next one. I will. With my voice, I am cold. With my voice, I am calling From Nick Cave's brand new album, Skeleton Tree, that's Jesus Alone, which we hope is an appropriate way to round off our conversation with superfan Matt Ross. My thanks to Matt for taking the time to talk to us. His latest film, Captain Fantastic, is on general release now. And a quick glance at the newspapers reveals I'm not alone in absolutely loving it. Alex Summers' score, meanwhile, of which you've just heard plenty, is available via Lakeshore and Invader Records. Don't forget you can find a full track list for the show via edithbowman.com, where you'll find all of our previous episodes too. Thus far, we've spoken to Ben Wheatley, David Ayer, Todd Sollins, Todd Phillips and John Favreau, with Andrea Arnold, Thea Sharrick and Matt Whitecross appearing in the coming weeks. My website is also the place to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Spotify, Facebook and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK if you prefer to go direct, which is well worthwhile given that we frequently have CDs, DVDs and vinyl to give away. 
Next week, I talk to director David McKenzie, whose new film, Hell or High Water, is, in my opinion, phenomenal, as is the score written by none other than Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. I look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Thank you.